0: Okay, and we are rolling. Today we have Cassandra Spencer. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this.
1: Thank you, Taylor.
0: How did you end up working at Facebook?
1: So once I got out of the military, um, you know, I was kind of just trying to find my way. There's kind of a series of unfortunate events, and I, I found myself in Austin, Texas. And so when I was offered a contract job at Facebook back in 2017, I was like, hey, this is great. This will be my, my foot in the door, you know, to a great career in the civilian sector. And, uh, that, that was kind of how I ended up there.
0: Well, I imagine it would be very exciting to you, especially a company like Facebook. What, what year were you employed there? You were there for like a year or two years.
1: Yeah. So I was a contractor there from 2017 to 2018 at their facility in Austin, Texas. So I was a contractor, but I was on uh, at the Facebook facility.
0: What was the culture like there?
1: Uh, the culture, you know, was very liberal and progressive, but that, that part I expected as much, you know, um, maybe not to the extent that it was, but I had grown up kind of amongst the left. So as a child, I grew up in Hawaii. And then, uh, when I started college, I went to NYU. And so I had kind of spent my whole, most of my life, um, around progressive people. And so I, you know, figured it would just kind of be like going back to high school, right? (laughs) Like same kind of people. But when I get to the Facebook office, it is literally floor to ceiling, like propaganda posters. Like it, it was almost a little dystopian to just see these like messages constantly blasted in your face.
0: What were the messages? What did the poster say? Uh,
1: oh, things like, you know, um, um, uh, trans women or women, you know, like, uh, uh, no human being is illegal, like stuff like that. You know, all the, the all the slogans, all the slogans that yeah. you know are kind of the the popular du-, du jour slogans.
0: So you get your foot in the door there. I imagine it's a very exciting thing. You're probably super stoked to be working at Facebook of all places. Did you have any preconceived notions going into it though? Where I know you said that you were used to being in kind of a liberal environment. At this point, the, the censorship, it wasn't so out in the open. They were basically openly lying about it, saying, oh, no, we're not doing any of that. Uh, that's not us. Um, so what did you kind of see there that was the first red flag where you're like, this makes me feel kind of weird and uncomfortable?
1: Well, and I hope that I actually wouldn't run into any of that because I was working in intellectual property. And so I was handling copyright and trademark claims. Um, but occasionally you would get a a ticket in from somebody who was like a more political figure, right? And so one time I got one in from like a, you know, independent conservative outlet that I had recognized the name. And in order to, you know, go and process the validity of the claim, you have to look at the back end of both of these pages, kind of see like, you know, what's going on here. And I saw an odd note on their account that said ia live action deboost live distribution and so i was like oh that's it was in like the account note section like where if i had issued a copyright strike against the account it was in that same kind of area or if some other action like let's say they had labeled content as like violent or sensitive you know it would be in that same section on the back end and so i was like well and it and it was something that said that the user was not notified that this was added to their account. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange, you know, but sometimes you see an odd note on an account and you don't know why it's there. I'm not an engineer. So I, I kind of ignored it, right? Just move on. Cause I'm processing, you know, thousands of pieces of content a day. And, but then I kept seeing it over and over again. And it was always on the back end of conservative pages. It was never, because I would get political, you know, tickets from political figures on the left as well. And I would never see this note appear on their pages. And the people who I would see this note on weren't like fringy people. Um, Like I saw it, for instance, on Steven Crowder's page and the Daily Caller's page, you know, not, no one that anyone would find particularly like, oh, like we're not talking about like the Daily Stormer or something weird. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So, um, I saw it and I kept seeing it. So eventually I saw a tweet from James O'Keefe saying like, Hey, if you're on the inside of these companies, you can reach out to us. And so I did, I reached out to the Veritas tips at protonmail.com tip line, and it kind of just went from there.
0: So what exactly happened when project Veritas came into the picture?
1: So, um, they sent someone down to talk to me and, you know, it, they made it very clear that like, you know, this is completely up to you, what you want to do with this. Um, and so they actually, I'm sorry, my cat is trying to attack my feet. No, you're <laughs> but, um, they, they equipped me with a hidden camera. Um, which I did not know really how to use. They gave me like a five-minute tutorial on how to use this thing, and you know they're like, "Hey, just if you see stuff and you you think it's something that might be newsworthy, um, by all means, just you know uh, send it on over to us." And so from there, I kind of went down the proverbial rabbit hole, and I found myself because um, I worked the evening shift at Facebook, so I would work from 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. And I would find myself independently researching things until the sun came up, because then once I started seeing this code, I wanted to know exactly what it meant. I wanted to see if there was anything else going on. And and I found other things uh, once I started kind of digging.
0: What else did you find?
1: So I found um, one of the documents that I turned over to Project Veritas is what, what has been called like the troll report where they outlined a plan for dealing with trolls on the platform, which um, we believed to be a thinly guised term for conservatives. Because uh, one of the examples they gave of troll behavior was a video from Lauren Chen of The Blaze, uh, a YouTube video called Why Social Justice Is Cancer. (laughs) And my you, Lauren Chen is not like an extreme personality by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, no i don't think people would call her a troll um and then they they listed like oh trolls use certain words like um mainstream media was one that they referred to um, disgusting yeah <laughs> uh normies uh red pill uh, those were all listed as troll terms
0: The left can't meme it's a fact yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just a fact it, it's so interesting this Cultural divide that we're experiencing right now because I, I personally, I grew up in Maine, which is a very liberal place. So, when I was like 17 or so, uh, that was when Barack Obama was running, and I was all for him. I'm like, yeah, let's have Barack Obama be president. But after he got elected, I started noticing this weird fanaticism from people where they're just obsessed with political figures. And the same thing can even be said about Donald Trump. I I like Donald Trump. I voted for him, Mm -hmm. but America has this weird Messiah fetish where they think the sky is going to open up and someone chosen by God is going to come down to save everybody. And that just ain't reality.
1: Oh yeah. And I I think a lot of that is when because people have kind of replaced religion with politics. Like, I'm not myself a religious person, but it's interesting to see how people have really just replaced it with one somehow thinking that it's more enlightened <laughs> to look at these political figures oh, yeah. as messiahs than, you know, Jesus or Mohammed or, you know, whoever you want to look to. Um, it, it, it's a little strange, actually, um, especially for me.
0: Well, we do the same thing with celebrities as well. Mm -hmm. They're these new uh, idols for our culture. Because if you really think about it, throughout human history, we didn't really have that. What we had were these religious figures throughout all of time. And that's who we were supposed to look to. And they were all infallible. But now we're dealing with these tangible, breathing, living human beings and you find out six months, a year, two years later, some shit they did when they were 25, that's human. That necessarily shouldn't be held against them. And all of a sudden, we put them in the, uh, the Twitter town s- square and get ready to hang them.
1: Oh, it's like pu- a public stoning at this yeah. point. It's, you know, and... Um, I, I think that if you really look back at it, it kind of started with like the celebrity worship culture that I would say started in the nineties and early two thousands, where we really started to find that there was a heavy emphasis on celebrity worship. Like, you know, like even from a young age, like with me just being like obsessed with boy bands as a teenager, like you can kind of see where something like that, where if, you keep that kind of level of fanaticism going into adulthood. And then, you know, you see even girls my age being obsessed with the Kardashians or whatever, and which I'm not, (laughs)
0: thankfully. You're not a Kardashian fan?
1: No. I mean, I I do enjoy a good Kardashian meme, but (laughs) um, I I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians.
0: (laughs) What do you think that is in human design that makes people so interested in that because i'm i'm not into it at all either but there are millions of people out there where this is like their thing you know what i mean i mean you look at look at the kardashians and i don't even necessarily hate the kardashians but they get left off the hook very easy when you look at Caitlyn jenner she straight up murdered someone with her car and no one talks about it
1: no no. And, um, I think part of it, what it comes from is like, if I look back on my childhood, um, some of the big celebrities back then, uh, reality stars were like Paris Hilton and, and, Nicole Smith, and they kind of lived, you know, what appeared to be the extremely glamorous lives. And I think that that became very aspirational for a lot of, um, young girls and i think you know on on the male side i'm sure there's equivalent type of celebrities but obviously i'm a girl so i i remember the ones that all the girls were into Mm -hmm. and but what's interesting too is then when you see the shift into social media now you're not even looking at people who are necessarily like celebrities you're looking at some of these Actual, Like literal teenagers
0: influencers.
1: Yeah. The influencers. influencers. Yeah. Influencers who are, you know, getting millions of views, you know, they're driving these expensive cars. They're completely like all their, their whole lives are curated and Photoshopped. And so I think it's really interesting to see how social media has influenced this kind of celebrity worship culture, because if you like content these algorithms will continue to feed you that algorithm. And so you just see it over and over and over again, where in your mind, eventually it almost becomes like, oh, this must be reality for these people because I'm seeing it over and over and over again.
0: Well, it's the great American deception. Yeah. There's there's this thing that gets dangled in front of us. I'm a believer in the American dream. Mm -hmm. No, I I love uh, the like a classic immigrant story of someone coming to the U.S. having fourteen dollars, starting a business, building an empire, stuff like that. But now, for the average person, we're not really taught in school what is realistic and what is tangible to get. Like my generation, so I'm a millennial. I'm going to be thirty this year. I was always told to pursue my dreams. Which is not a bad thing to, to tell a kid, but there, I think there has to be a dose of realism there. There's a, a dose of something that we're missing in our culture right now where we're using these gloves and we're too afraid to be honest in a genuine and empathetic way.
1: Well, and yeah, I completely agree with you because I, I'm a millennial as well. I'm 34, so I'm kind of at the older end of the millennials but I, for me, what I think kind of broke me from that mold is I had a child when I was 20 years old. You know, I had a daughter, and all of a sudden, that that's a reality check right there. Um, that suddenly it no longer is about you, and it's no longer about you know what clubs I'm going to go to or what I'm going to do, and this lifestyle I'm going to live. And that was when I that was right right around the same time, a little bit after I had decided that I wanted to join the army. Um, And so I think that joining the army and becoming a parent really brought me back down to earth and took me out of that whole um, kind of very millennial mindset um, that so much of our generation faces.
0: Well, that's interesting that you mentioned those two things, because in our generation, it's not necessarily frowned upon to have kids, but you look at our parents, they had children young. Mm -hmm. And also another thing, uh, it's, it's right now, I would say it's almost kind of frowned upon to, to be, to do any kind of military service. It's, it's not held to the same regard that it used to be. So those two things are kind of an outlier situation for you.
1: Oh yeah. And it was very much so, because like I said, I was a student at NYU. What changed my mind and why I decided to join the military is all of a sudden one day, You know, I had met somebody who was getting ready to deploy to Iraq. And up until that point, I had never known anybody who was going to go to war, you know, because I I lived in a, you know, NYU is a pretty wealthy school. So I, I lived in a bit of an insulated bubble from that. And after getting to know him and he was getting ready to go, one day I was sitting with some friends at like, you know, the dorm cafeteria And they were, you know, people were arguing about whether we should be in Iraq or not. And I realized that not a single person, including me at the time, would ever go to Iraq or ever experience war. And so it seemed so odd that these people were sitting there arguing when they would never experience it. And so I I ended up not deploying. I always make that very clear during my career. By the time I graduated and commissioned in 2010, everything was kind of dying down. But I joined the military with the intent of not wanting to be ignorant on these issues. If I wanted to talk about it, I wanted it to be something that I experienced firsthand.
0: What did you do when you were in the military? What was your job?
1: Um, I was a public affairs officer. My unit handled um, army intelligence for all of Asia and the Pacific Rim. And so, like I said, this was from 2010 to like 2015, um, I served in that role. So <laughs> I tried to deploy several times, but, uh, I was, t- I was told by my commander that 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 was not my job. <laughs> I was needed in Asia Pacific.
0: So you were stationed over there.
1: Uh, I was stationed at Schofield, Barracks, Hawaii.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Cool. Which is where you grew up mm-hmm, or close yeah. to where you grew up.
1: Yeah. They basically just sent me back home. <laughs>
0: So after you get out of the military, that's when you get into Facebook, you do all this stuff with Project Veritas. Mm -hmm. That seems like a big burden to bear because basically what you're doing is almost this old school style of gumshoe reporting where you're undercover. So mentally and emotionally, what were you feeling in that time?
1: It was a very strange time for me. Um, It was a strange time in my life. I talk in the book about how um, through a very bizarre family court case that is still kind of ongoing, um, I lost access to my daughter. And so that was when I decided to just jump into journalism full time. Um, Originally, I was training to be a dance teacher, and I had every intention of once I disclosed these Facebook documents to Project Veritas, you know, shaking their hand. Uh, glad to work with you guys and then walking away. But when that happened, you know, I was like, well, you know, I, it's just me now. So why don't, why don't I just be a full-time undercover journalist? And it was a very strange thing because I had my life back here in Texas that I would, you know, get to experience maybe a couple days a month and then i would be on the road living at least one other life sometimes multiple other lives you know under different names different aliases and um it it was very strange you know um i continued to compete on the country western dance circuit and i remember one time going to a competition in korea and then right before the gen Jin genie google story which was one of the biggest stories of my career released as i was flying back to the united states from south korea and then getting off the plane and it's like everything's gone crazy what was that, that story about so the ginger google story um a lot of people are familiar with the clip where there was a google executive who talked about how um they, google was training its algorithms where if they had gone back and changed their algorithms Would the outcome of 2016 be different and how they at Google uh, was yeah. working to prevent the next Trump situation. Um, that was one of the main quotes. And then that piece was cited on the floor of the House, on the Senate, and uh, the president discussed it as well.
0: Where do you see this big tech censorship going? How does this end? Because if you look at human history, it never ends well.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I try to be somewhat, hold on second. Um, everything's falling apart, no, <laughs> getting ready to move. But um, so I try to remain optimistic about it. Um, I think that we have some legislators in there who are willing to do what it takes to stop this oligarchy that's essentially formed uh, in our country. And I think that we have a lot of up and coming leaders. um, I may or may not decide to be one of them in the near future, who's willing to take on big tech, because I think the time to be like, oh, well, you know, just create your own. The parlor situation, I think, is the classic example of why saying, oh, well, make your own social media app. uh, That argument has become somewhat null and void. It's just
0: boot to the neck now if you go against the grain.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, there was actually a pretty fascinating testimony the other day by Laura Loomer uh, speaking about the censorship bill that's anti-censorship bill that's going through Florida and talking about how because um, a lot of these government agencies use Facebook and Twitter as their primary means of disseminating emergency information, her being completely deplatformed off of these things Um, made it where she could not get essential information about, you know, Hurricane Dorian. And then Uber and Lyft she's banned from, and they were offering rides to shelters. So then she had no access to that as well. So it could potentially become a life or death situation if someone is deplatformed like this.
0: So how should these Social media companies be managed because it, it kind of mirrors at one point in American history when all of these big oil companies were taking over and they were just huge conglomerations. So, do you think maybe like Section Two Hundred and Thirty being repealed, or what, what? What are your thoughts?
1: So, I always tell this to people: Big tech is a leviathan. It's not going to be a one size fits all solution. I think we need Section Two Hundred and Thirty reform. Um, I don't want to completely get rid of it because I do want to have a free and open internet and I want platforms to be able to, you know, not be responsible for what users generate user generated content, but the, we need more clarification and consequences. If these platforms decide to act as a publisher and that's kind of the current issue is Facebook and Google and Twitter, they are acting as publishers and not as neutral public platforms. Um, So, they should lose their, if they choose to continue doing this, they should lose their legal immunity because right now they have a sweetheart deal with the government under Section 230.
0: Well, it makes me wonder what is going on behind the scenes and what information that these companies are feeding them to have that sweetheart deal because the government is not going to be, oh, yeah, just have your cake and eat it too. And we want nothing in return.
1: Oh, they've been funding, like, if you look at the top, the top donors to um democratic candidates this past election i think i want to say google was number two as far as contributions um to democratic candidates so they have a vested interest and they've had their hooks as well into gop politicians it's not just democratic politicians they've tried to play both sides of it and um i think that you know big tech um I think they need to be broken up as well. That's another thing. Is in that recent Project Veritas release that guy, um, that Facebook executive, talks about how even though he would make less money, that the world would be a better place if you know companies like Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus all had to be separate companies, and they no longer could be this conglomerate because Mark Zuckerberg is essentially the king of two billion people.
0: No one should have that much power.
1: No, absolutely not.
0: And I say that as a person who, uh, being real with myself, and I've always said this about the NSA thing too, you know, when, when it came out like Edward Snowden, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in that moment, ha- having that kind of access to people, I don't know if I could be responsible with it. And I think it's human nature. I think it's human nature that any one of us could be easily corrupted. And it doesn't make someone bad or wrong for having that in them, but it's that impulse to go and do it anyways, even though you and, and not have any morals about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, he strikes me as kind of like a moralist person. Mm-hmm. Looking back at that movie, The Social Network, did you ever see that? Yes. I think there's something really Weird I feel about that too that movie Being made it didn't necessarily paint him In a good light Mm -mm. But you look at it And how soon it came out compared to His story and kind of where it was Because when did that movie come out like 2010 2011 something like that There almost needs to be a sequel to that With everything that's going on now Like you can make a sequel to that movie Just in the 2016 Election
1: Oh absolutely and it's it's weird because I know that um, Project Veritas got a leaked tape where even Mark Zuckerberg talked about having too much power. So he's aware of how much power he has, but he—it's one thing to be like, "Oh yeah, I have too much power," but what are you doing to, you know, put checks on yourself? And there's been a lot of calls that he needs to step down as the CEO. Um, Because the problem is, is unlike a regular board, he can't be, he owns too much of the company to where he can't just be, you know, forced out by the board of directors.
0: Because it it would also create a power vacuum there too. And my whole thought is, well, who's going to take it over after him, after seeing what he's done with it, someone worse could come in.
1: Oh yeah. And that's why I think that the time for government intervention is now, I think you know before the problem gets worse and especially before if we're ever going to have fair elections ever again we need to put in rules like for instance Facebook should not be able to ban um political candidates like because that then becomes an in-kind contribution to their opponent so like I said Laura Loomer is somebody who I've been watching she, do I agree with everything Laura Loomer does? Absolutely not. Um, her style is very different than mine. But in her congressional race, you know, she was completely banned off Facebook and Twitter. At what point does that become an in-kind contribution to her opponent where she's not even, forget about actual advertising, she's not allowed to post on these platforms.
0: Well, it also makes me wonder about uh, these smaller social media companies that are trying to rise and basically have an, uh, an even platform. Cause there's a real hunger for it. People want mm-hmm. that people desire that, but now they get cast as being conservative or QAnon and getting labeled. You know what I mean? Right. And with the, the whole parlor thing, like that was the most dystopian thing that I think we've, we've dealt with like Trump getting banned from Twitter and then the fallout from parlor after that, all that stuff. Um, Do these smaller social media companies have a chance in the landscape that we're in right now?
1: I think that um, they do. I think they do. Absolutely. I, I try to support as many of them as possible. And I also encourage people who are, you know, if you have the time, listen, I get, it's a lot of effort, Um, to not be bullied off of the big main ones as well. Because I think it's very important that those of us who have a differing opinion don't isolate ourselves from the conversation and end up in an echo chamber.
0: Yes. Because as soon as all of that happened, the first thing I thought was, okay, this is Horrible, but not for the reasons that people necessarily think like it's, it was horrible in the short term, but in the long term, all it's doing is radicalizing people, radicalizing all these crazy QAnoners, you know what I mean, that are mm-hmm. that are ready to storm the Capitol, that are ready to incite riots. I don't know what we can do because. A lot of the people, I'm, I'm friends with people across all political spectrums. I have friends who voted for Joe Biden. I have friends who voted for Donald Trump. I have friends who voted for Kanye West. <laughs> and I love them all. But with my, with anyone liberal that I know that I'm even friendly with, it's almost like I, uh, this is going to sound horrible to say, but in, in a way that I'm in the closet with being conservative, it's like they know And I wouldn't even call myself a conservative, but it's like, they, they know that, but they don't want to talk about it. It's, it's always feels like the elephant in the room.
1: Right. It's weird because my beliefs, if you look even, you know, um, the early to mid two thousands, my, if you look at my actual like stance on various issues, you wouldn't necessarily put me in the conservative box. no. But suddenly now I'm labeled and I've had hit pieces that have basically labeled me as like a far right like nationalist. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, just it's it's strange, honestly. But
0: but the comedy of our culture Mm -hmm. is two things. The first one, Richard Spencer can go on CNN, a white supremacist. Well, they love him. It, It doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? It's, it's shit like that that drives me wild. Because it's like, okay, they are talking so much crap about white supremacists and all these people, which, hey, you know what? I get it. They're white supremacists. Yeah. They're scum. Like, whatever their they're wiring in their brain is crisscrossed. Mm-hmm. But they get a free pass if because he was like, Joe Biden needs to be president. Donald Trump is horrible for the country.
1: Well, and, you know, the thing is, is, I can it it baffles me how much airtime the mainstream media has given people like Richard Spencer uh, at giving attention to people like David Duke. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear from these people. They don't represent any like significant block of the Republican Party or people on the right. They they represent, I would guess, dozens of people out of a country of three hundred and fifty million.
0: Well, okay here is the cynical conspiracy theorist Mm and maybe they are using those people to where they can classify everybody that has similar beliefs whatever as right wing as white supremacist as religious nut job gun nut whatever the the catchphrase is that they're using that week but the even more cynical side of me says it's unintentional or unintentional, and they don't they don't get the irony of the situation.
1: No, um, th- they know what they're doing. Um, there's even been whistleblowers within CNN. Uh, Carrie Porch was one where they talk about how some of these people who are veterans of CNN and they remember when it used to be more like there's always going to be some you know level of bias, but they talk about how they don't report news anymore. It's just this like bizarre political theater now. Um, And so I I think it's very intentional that they put those types of people over there. Like no no intellectually honest person thinks that Richard Spencer has this like mass following. Like I think if Richard Spencer were to hold a rally, you would not see maybe even a fraction of what you would see at like a Donald Trump event, right? No, yeah. (laughs) these people are like, I wouldn't give someone like Richard Spencer or David Duke the time of day, because it's like, listen, I know what your beliefs are. I, I think you're a jerk. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's, I don't mind having those types of people on social media because my ideas are not so fragile to where, like, I can argue with those people because that's the great thing about social media is everybody gets a voice so I would rather combat bad speech with more speech. You know, if somebody has a, you know, if, you know, you mentioned QAnon, something like that. I don't want them banned off social media because I want to be able to be like, no, you're wrong, and here's why. It,
0: I think, also banning someone it makes them a martyr.
1: It does, hundred percent does.
0: Well, you look at look at the Alex Jones situation. So I personally, I like Alex Jones. I like how crazy he is. I'm entertained yeah. by him. I think he's funny. Um, but people try and report on him as if he is a serious political figure, which in some ways you could argue he is. But Alex Jones is really all about theater of the mind. He's a performer.
1: Well, he is very... A lot of the things he says, there will be a kernel of truth there. Yes. Like he says yeah, it in yeah. a very bombastic fashion Or oh, it's yeah. like, you know, like when he's talking about, you know, turning the freaking frogs gay. Well, yeah, there's chemicals in the waters that are affecting, you know, the frogs. So technically there's some truth there, but the way he says it is so hyperbolic that, and it's meant to be that way, right? Yeah. It grabs your attention. He's a radio but, host. Right. And I don't know if you've seen the clip. Of him going off at the QAnon people, but it is literally one of my favorite clips on the internet.
0: I think I have seen that clip, yeah, where he's just like screaming at him and pointing his finger, and <laughs> he's like,
1: "I will not suffer you people any longer. You witches, your warlocks. You said Trump was the chosen one." <laughs> like...
0: Oh yeah, he has a personal he has a personal vendetta, I think, against QAnon too because he gets lumped in with them, and he has been vocal this whole time about hating q he thinks it's a bunch of garbage it's a bunch of bs all of that
1: oh yeah and you know if you actually look at footage from january 6th alex jones was trying to stop people from what was going on
0: well like, he's smart enough to understand right that he is a he is going to get blamed and B, conservative people or people who just really aren't liberal that's that's yeah. like part of the new the liberal new speak. you know what mm-hmm. i mean
1: Oh, yeah. It's um, but I do think it, what's promising is and just recently we've seen Bill Maher come out against the like purity culture on the left. And even Sarah Silverman said she's leaving the Democratic Party because of the elitism and how it's like there's no grace. There's no room for nuance anymore. No. So I do think that you are starting to see people even, you know, left of people who are very clearly left of center start to wake up and realize, oh, this is a problem. Like, we do not, not want to go down this road.
0: There was a second point I wanted to make about, um, I, well, let me ask you this. Do you know who David Lynch is, the director? He did David the TV Lynch. show, Twin Peaks. He did, um, he done uh, Blue Velvet, like all of these really weird cerebral, I can't even speak, cerebral pieces of work. And they're always like, uh, like the dark side of the American underbelly and the American dream. But I wanted to make a point about Joe Biden and kind of how he's like this Lynchian character because he very clearly has dementia. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, and I honestly, I feel bad for Joe Biden. Like I actually
1: held his hand for three minutes. You held Joe
0: Biden's hand for three minutes.
1: Yes. And after that whole thing, I was like, I came back from work that day. And I said, this man very clearly has dementia. Yeah. In 2019, I had to hold Joe Biden's hand for three. Why minutes. did you have was... to hold his hand? So <laughs> I was in Iowa. I was undercover. Um, you know, I was going down and he was like shaking people's hands. And of course, usually you don't get particularly I- interesting things from the candidate because candidates are always very polished and what they say, but, um, you know, you go and try and talk to them anyway. So he came and shook my hand. And then all of a sudden this like climate change activist started like screaming at him. And she was like right next to me. And this woman is screaming at Joe Biden. And, and he just like, has this vice grip on my hand and I'm trying to get like my hand back. Like I'm trying to kind of like pull it back and he will not let go of my hand. <laughs> And so for three minutes, which felt like the longest three minutes of my life, I had to hold Joe Biden's hand.
0: That is very weird.
1: Yeah. 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 I didn't get the hair sniff or anything like that, but uh, I I have had to hold Joe Biden's hand.
0: Hey, you can put it on the checklist then. Yeah. I mean, you got to talk to the guy who was interviewed by Cardi B. He
1: was interviewed by Cardi B. Yeah. Did was you, he did interviewed you see, by Cardi B? No. He was straight up interviewed by Cardi B.
0: You should watch it. It is so freaking bizarre. Like, this is, I think this is the shit that I, like, look, I don't like a lot of the things that are going on, but in a weird way, I'm really obsessed with it, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. Because we're living in, like, the, the the facade of America has dropped. And I think this is a great country. I love America. There's so much about it that I think is great. But for so long, we had this false sense of, I don't know what, what exactly it was. We just had a false sense of something. Like this, this American elitism mixed with the Puritanism, all that stuff. But now I feel like Donald Trump, and this is the reason that I like Donald Trump, all of that went away. And suddenly we got to look at what we really are, both bad and good. And there was no looking away. He was a four-year-long acid trip. And not everybody can handle the acid trip.
1: Well, and what I think is, you know, politics have always been downstream from culture. That was something that Andrew Breitbart had said. But I think with Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think with Donald Trump is where we finally saw and we saw it a little bit with Barack Obama, but Donald Trump being a reality star and a media figure really just made the worlds of celebrity and politics collide in a way that we had never seen before. And that's why you see bizarre things like Cardi B interviewing Joe Biden. Like,
0: it, it's breaking people's brains. I, things mm-hmm. have calmed down since Joe Biden got elected, mm-hmm. but the weirdness is still there. It is always around. It's like I see little blips. They're like glitches in the matrix. Now, <laughs> I personally love it. I mean, I I stopped really uh, trying to keep up with the news because I was just mainlining it for a long time and i was fascinated like by the character that donald uh, donald trump is because he's almost like a romantic hero he's very flawed Mm -hmm. in, in in a literary sense yes but i was always fascinated by him i think back in 2016 when he first or 2015 when he first started rising i thought he was funny but i'm like he'll never be president and then when he got elected i was like that's weird um but it wasn't really until I started seeing like some of his policies and the fact that he's like, we're gonna knock it off with the war, we're gonna bring everybody home. That yeah. I was like, okay, I can get behind something like that. I can get behind taxes being lower, gas prices being lower. And then now now we have Joe Biden again, which is like bomb everyone. And by the way, all the all the fracking and the oil that we're doing here in the US that that was making gas prices low, we're gonna get rid of that immediately.
1: Oh yeah. It's well, and it, it, which becomes like a tax on the middle class and during one of the worst economic periods in our world history, we're raising the price of gas like an essential thing that people need to just be able to, you know, it's it's really, 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 really bad timing to have to deal with like a Joe Biden presidency um, coming out of covid, I think.
0: Well, yeah, not only that, it people have this nostalgia, especially now that we had Donald Trump for Barack Obama's America, which Barack Obama's America, like those were my teen years in early adulthood. I don't remember them being all that particularly great.
1: No, I remember during the military cutbacks, um, having discussions about whether we could afford toner for the printer. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't particularly look back on the Obama years fondly cuz it was that was when I commissioned was in 2010 so right during the middle and that was a big reason why I never deployed is because you know everything was changing there were cutbacks and there wasn't as much opportunity in the military as there had been under the Bush administration. I don't necessarily agree with everything the Bush administration did either. You know, I've had to have a lot of kind of come to Jesus moments about you know the war in Iraq and my thoughts on it have changed. Um, and even my thoughts on someone like Ed Snowden, who I was actually working at Schofield. Uh, we had a unit at the Kunia Tunnel that worked with the NSA when that all happened so i was like quite literally there when all this stuff was going on Mm -hmm. and for many many years i held a very negative opinion of edward snowden but i actually wrote a medium piece about how like i was wrong you know especially uh james o'keefe was actually the one who brought up he's like well don't you think considering that you're now a whistleblower that that's a it's a little hypocritical And, you know, of course, I I hemmed and hawed and was like, no, it's different what I did. uh," But, yeah, upon further reflection, you know, um, yeah, I I agree with what he did. And I think the courts and everything else have vindicated him.
0: The thing that I am most mad at Donald Trump for is not pardoning Edward Snowden. Like Donald Trump, he was like uh, he had senioritis. Especially after he figured out, okay, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be president again. And again, this is another flaw of Donald Trump where he's just like, okay, so I'm not going to give you anything you want now. And I thought it would have been, there would have been no greater troll to the current climate in the current culture than pardoning Edward Snowden and pardoning Julian Assange.
1: My three that I wanted to see two were for political reasons and, you know, important, very important pardons as far as what they've done. Those were Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. And then the last one I wanted to see just as a cultural FU was I wanted to see a Joe exotic pardon. I'm not going to lie. I was like, that would be a delightful FU to the culture to be like (laughs) tiger King, you provided so much joy to people when everyone was locked in their houses. You can walk free.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine the, the three of them being at the White House with Donald Trump at the same time? That, <laughs> oh is, that is the reality that we're living in now. Like, right. I am 100% convinced that is the reality that we're, we're living in. Now it, it feels like we've shifted timelines again to where we've gone back to basically the sleepy Obama years. Because that's what I would refer to them as. They were very sleepy. He was a a great uh, a great speaker. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He was like a great statesman for mm-hmm. reaching out to people. But the rest of the world didn't really respect Barack Obama. Like other countries, they didn't they didn't care for him. They were afraid of Donald Trump, though.
1: Well, and I think and with Joe, it's almost like the the wish vers- version of Barack Obama because he's not a good orator at all. No. Um, He does not inspire. I, I still have yet to meet the enthusiastic Biden voter. I said, I was on the ground with Democrats, you know, most of 2019 during the primaries. I never met anyone who was like, yeah, my man Joe. There were a lot of people who were like, oh, Joe might be our best hope to get Trump out. But nobody was like enthusiastic about Joe Biden, whereas other candidates, you know, like there was a lot of enthusiasm for Elizabeth Warren, for Pete Buttigieg, uh, the Bernie people, obviously they're a whole different breed, you know, Andrew Yang, he's got pretty uh, fervent followers, but I never met a single person who was like an enthusiastic Joe Biden voter. There were people who voted for him because they wanted to get Trump out, but not because they wanted Joe Biden to be the president.
0: It's just horrible for America that, that, that we have, we know that the game is rigged now. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I'm not even talking about the election from 2020. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. the lead up to it it very clearly looked like, okay, Bernie's going to get screwed again. like, I knew that automatically. I didn't Mm -hmm. know who they were going to pick. I thought if they picked Joe Biden, I'm like, well, that means Donald Trump has it in the bag. I was wrong. But what was your experience on the campaign trail? What did you do in 2019?
1: So in 2019, um, I was in pretty much every single campaign at some point. Like I'm talking everyone from, you know, I spent a lot of time in Bernie Sanders. That's the story that got published, you know, ultimately was about the crazy Bernie people wanting to throw Republicans into gulags and, uh you know, very unironically talking about like wanting to line up uh, tr- people on the beach. In fact, they said liberals get the wall first. That was a quote from this Bernie s- paid staffer, not uh some random volunteer. In fact, the I believe it was the Washington Post. Dave Weigel had to retract that he claimed it was a volunteer, and I was like, no, this is a paid staffer.
0: This what does is, that mean? Get the wall?
1: Uh, line them up and shoot them.
0: Fuck! They're not even being. I mean that there's there's geez uh, that's scary to think about
1: oh yeah we're getting to that point he was the one he was probably the person who that I dealt with you know sometimes being an undercover journalist can be dangerous he was the person who I remember going to the office being like I'm worried this guy if he finds out who I am is going to show up at my house with a gun you know um
0: really which is not not the public impression that Bernie Sanders gives
1: no, not at all. And he even talked about how there's a lot of me's in the Bernie campaign. And there was something about that campaign that was different. Like I said, I spent time in every campaign, you know, uh, like I had a 10 minute conversation with Pete Buttigieg and, you know, nothing of newsworthy significance came out of that conversation. I, I thought he was a nice guy. You know, um, I've talked to Tulsi Gabbard. I've talked to Love Tulsi. Yeah. Yeah. she's. What's funny is uh, luckily she wouldn't recognize me, but I used to work with her back, her office back when she was on the city council back in Hawaii. I worked uh, because I was an army reserve officer, but I would be on and off orders. And um, I worked with her office when she was on city council. But um, I, I was even in, for a while, I was even in the Marianne Williamson campaign, <laughs> like crazy anti mary <laughs>
0: You also so, were working with uh, Beta O'Rourke as well, too, right?:
1: Yeah, in his Senate campaign. So Beto O'Rourke, uh, not a big fan of mine, um, I was in his Senate campaign in 2018 where his staffers took it upon themselves to use campaign funds to buy supplies for people who are coming here illegally. Like I was literally with them pushing the cart at the grocery store and they're like loading up this cart. They're talking about how they're going to cover this up on like the campaign finance reports. And, you know, they thought my name was Jennifer. They're like, you know, Jennifer, if it it would be really bad if the wrong person found out about this, we could get in really big trouble. And you were the wrong person. (laughs) I was. And that was the one moment where I was like, that was my first assignment undercover. And I had to cover my mouth because I was like trying not to smile because when she said that, I was like, well, I know that one's going to end up in the piece.
0: <laughs> so what is it in you that drives you to, to do this crazy stuff? Were you, are you like a thrill seeker, an adrenaline junkie?
1: I describe it in the book as I've always had a justice complex. I've always been something where if I see something going on that's wrong, I just feel the need to open my big mouth about it. Um, even from a very young age, like I talk about how I led a revolt against the school cafeteria at the age of 10. (laughs) Um, and as a teenager, I was a prolific letters to the editor writer in the local paper in Maui. And so I've always kind of, and, and even when you look at my reasons for joining the military, it was like, you know, I didn't want to, uh, be running my mouth about like whether people should go to war or not without being willing to experience it myself, And so I think if you look at the progression of my life, it it kind of was a natural progression to end up where I did, um, in hindsight, it is at at the time I'd be like, what am I doing? (laughs) How did I get here? I just would kind of, in a very Forrest Gumpian way, kind of stumble into these situations.
0: Have you, uh, heard the, uh, conspiracy theory about Forrest Gump and that he, uh, he was the one who assassinated JFK, and he went to MLK's rally, I think, in the movie too, and there was one other person, but there's a conspiracy theory that he was actually the assassin, and he was programmed. Have you heard about that?
1: No, I, I love I those kind of pop TikTok. culture theories. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on TikTok, yeah, so <laughs> I'm actually, uh, surprisingly, that was a social media platform that I, I blew up the most on. Uh, I was like, "Go figure."
0: <laughs> TikTok is just something that I've recently discovered. My uh, the producer for my show, Millhouse, he's very familiar with TikTok, and he would always talk to me about it. And I heard all these great pop songs that sounded kind of different than normal songs you would hear on the radio. Mm-hmm. And um, we started talking about it one day. There, there's like something like TikTok. People see it as the destruction of our society. I actually think it's a really positive thing it is i think the the biggest social media platform that gives people the most equal voices
1: right now it's the platform that i've experienced the least amount of censorship on as far as aside from the alt tech you know kind of up and coming dedicated free speech platforms i've had way more censorship on facebook instagram well, obviously they hate me i'm literally banned from facebook premises that's that's a true story that's in the book as well um, and then Twitter. Uh so you know, I, I'm on TikTok and I kind of just stumbled on there. And then, you know, I had that was one thing that helped drive the sales of my book. Um, was a viral TikTok I made where I just said, Hey, I was a whistleblower at Facebook and then I was an undercover journalist.
0: <laughs> so for the book, was this something you self published or do you have a publisher?
1: So I went with like a hybrid publisher. Um, So I have a publishing company that I worked with. They handled everything like that. But um, because I was paying them, I maintain complete control of my intellectual property, which was very important to me. Yes. And, um, you know, obviously then I have a bigger portion of the royalties. Um, I, in fact, I, I get the royalties aside from the publishing costs. So, Um, I actually encourage people to go that route because traditional publishers are even like censoring books. Like if you see what happened with Josh Hawley's book where it got pulled, I, when that happened, I told my publisher, I was like, I am so glad (laughs) that I went this route and that I did not go with one of the, you know, big free publishing houses because I don't need the, oh, like, oh, I was published by Simon and Schuster. (laughs) Like, I don't care. Well,
0: it's, uh, so I'm a musician and like a creative type and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it seems that sometimes these, whatever the, the shadow figures are in the entertainment industry, they almost get you under the thumb and then never release you from that. You don't have any freedom to, to create or voice your opinion. And there's a lot of people out there who are afraid to speak up. Why do you think it is that people are so hesitant to speak right now?
1: I don't know what it is. I think it's a lot of it is the cancel culture. And I think if you're beholden to some of these bigger companies, bigger labels that, um, you do run a risk of losing your livelihood, but that's what's so great about. And it's interesting. You talked about TikTok, and you talked about the music industry. Um, recently I talked to the Marine rapper and Topher. I don't know if you're familiar with either one of them, Mm -mm. uh, so there are these two rappers. They released a song called The Patriot. Very, you know, uh, pro-America song, clean lyrics. They were censored um, for a time off of Spotify, iTunes, and everything else after January 6th. And they, they fought it. They won. They're back on. But now their song was like number one in the uh, digital download charts on Billboard. And so it's a story that I'm I'm hoping to write a piece about because the books come out I've, I'm behind on my other writing, but they definitely be someone who I think you should talk to because they talked about <clears throat> the music industry and they actually blew up on TikTok.
0: Interesting, yeah, I, I would love to chat with them. They're like, it's interesting being in uh, in Nashville. That's where I am, mm-hmm. and. It's like, I do a bunch of different stuff. I do the podcast. I do music. I play bass. I produce, I write songs, a bunch of different random things. But there has uh, been some pushback against me voicing my non-liberal opinions, especially in East Nashville, which is probably kind of similar to Austin from what I hear, <laughs> where there's this, uh, this groupthink going on and. If you go against whatever the mainstream narrative is, you're cast out. And there's a bunch of artists out there that are just like me that aren't able to get their voices out, that aren't able to express themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what's so wonderful about things like TikTok, where that one there is a large music element to it because you know originally it was, I think it was a shoot off of a musically where it was kids like dancing and lip syncing to stuff. And so I think for music in particular, because I, I'm very passionate. I I'm a musician myself. Um, oh, I don't nice. really play cool. so much anymore, but yeah, I was a classical competitive classical pianist as a child. And I play like five or six different instruments when I was younger. Um, and so the music industry is something that I still feel very passionate about, even though obviously I, most of my work is centered around big tech and other stuff these days. But I think that taking back the culture is so, so important, because that's really where the politics truly does come downstream from the culture.
0: Well, you look at the Gina Carano situation. Yeah. She gets fired from the Mandalorian for social media posts, which maybe it wasn't the, it was a clumsy comparison. I felt like she made, Mm -hmm. but I'm not inclined to disagree with what the sentiment was, which is basically the Nazis censored people. And they weren't allowed to speak out against the mainstream people, lost jobs, everything that we're starting to see now, everything that's happening over in China, which is the elephant in the room right now in America.
1: Oh, 100%. The CCP has an undue amount of influence in what should be American companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google. The NBA. Yeah, the NBA. You see that where you know, they're all about Black Lives Matter and whatever, but you can't wear a pro uh, Hong Kong anything.
0: Funny how that works.
1: Yeah. Very strange. So
0: tell me where can people find you on social media? What are all your tags, all that good stuff? How can they find the book?
1: Um, so the book is on Amazon. If you just look up impact Cassandra Spencer, um, it should pull up. Um, On TikTok, I am Cassandra.Spencer.TX. Like I said, that's probably one of my more active platforms. Uh, Twitter, I'm Cassandra Spencer minus the E in my last name because my name was just one character too long (laughs) for Twitter. And uh, basically, if you look up my name, I'm on pretty much every social platform from Parler to Gab to... um, There's another one I'm looking at called, uh, I believe uh polit chatter um that deals mainly with politics but yeah you you'll find me everywhere <laughs> if you want to look and I'm very easy to get a hold of
0: awesome well thank you so much for coming on today
1: oh no thank you for having me
0: of course